Uh, well, welcome. If we haven't met before, my name is Bill, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. We're so glad that you guys chose to be with us here this morning. Well, today is a special day because we've been going through this series on wisdom, right? There's three wisdom books in the Bible, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And we want to step in and we want to engage with each one of these books. Uh, and so since Job is a really hard book, we decided to get a guest speaker to come in. <laughs> so he could be our scapegoat, right? So, so if you get mad at anyone, you can get mad at him for it. But no, actually, a big part of this series was inspired because I heard a podcast uh, from Pillar Seminary. So I've been a part of Pillar Seminary the last two years, and they did a podcast on Job that really just opened up Job in a way that I'd never experienced it before. Uh, And that was actually a big part of the catalyst for us uh, having this series. So no pressure, but I want to introduce to you guys Eric Smith, founder of Pillar Seminary. Will you guys give him a warm mosaic welcome? So I've been a part of Pillar for two years now, and Eric's been kind of a regular part of our community here at Mosaic. He came a few years ago, did the book of Exodus, came a year ago into Genesis, and now you're doing Job. We just give you all the hard books of the Bible. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Are you any good at Revelation? Nope. <laughs> all right. All I, know, I know a guy, though. You know, know a guy. I know a all guy. All right, we'll get him to come in. Yep, all right. do it. Give it up one more time for Eric. Uh, it's good to be here. This is my first uh, post-Aaron experience of Mosaic. This is my first time in this building. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the journey with Mosaic uh, for me and Becky, my wife, who's over there, who doesn't like to have attention drawn to her, so she's right there. Could you wave, please, everyone? She really, really loves it when everyone uh, looks at her. And um, But uh, uh, my, our journey with Mosaic started uh, pre-Mosaic uh, when Becky and I moved Back to Lincoln, back in 2006, um, we had a friend who was going to a church called River Tree, so we visited River Tree, and um, there was uh, some announcement or something that had been made that um, pertained to, doesn't really matter what the details were, but the funny thing was is that the church we were at in Chicago before moving here, I had done a lot of work on, on this particular topic, and so I was kind of praying, and it was like, Lord, I've done a lot of work on this topic. You know, maybe I should go to lunch with the pastor and just talk about what, what we've done, but, you know, I don't want to be that guy who, like, visits one time, and it's like, hey, you know, I happen to be an expert on this topic. Let's go to lunch. So I, so I was like, I was kind of praying about it, and I was weirding out, and I thought, there's no way. And uh, so this is a true story. I was in the restroom, uh, you know, doing what you do in the restroom, and Greg, uh, Greg Loy, uh, Aaron's dad, who was pastor of River Tree, walks in <laughs> and does his thing, you know, so we're, <laughs> we're hanging out, and <laughs> I, I'm not, okay, I didn't mean that, that <laughs> did not mean it that way. So anyway... Uh, so here we are, and um, uh, and and I'm like I'm a, I'm a, a an introvert in real life. You know, it's one thing to get up and preach and be like, ah, but then afterwards I'm going to be in that dark corner over there, like you know, sort of cowering. But for those of you who knew, who, who who know Greg, 
Greg is like the absolute, complete, and total opposite of that, right? He's the guy who will walk into the bathroom and go, hey, I don't think I know you. I'm Greg, you know? <laughs> and uh, so that was how my relationship to uh, River Tree started, and then uh, we got involved there, and so that uh, uh, meant getting to know Aaron, and, um, and, and uh, so Aaron... And I became friends over time. We served at River Tree together. And then uh, one time we were out uh, having beer and cigars. And I don't really remember the story that well, so I retell it based on having heard Aaron tell it several times. Uh, But at some point, apparently, while we were hanging out, I I said, you know, you you should plant a church. And uh, so then he engaged on the journey uh, to plant a church, which started with kind of a, uh, a failed mess and then eventually uh, ended up as Mosaic. The failed mess, I'm not referring to Mosaic. That's just <laughs> FYI. And um, uh, so then it was, it was very interesting to sort of walk with Mosaic from afar. Becky and I live in Lincoln uh, over the years. Or we, <laughs> we live in Omaha, I meant to say. And uh, so to, to, to walk with Mosaic over the years from afar and... Um, and then I had the joy and the honor of um, being the consultant to walk Mosaic through the succession, uh, planning the, the, the search for a new pastor. And uh, for what it's worth, you're in very good hands. Um, I, um, in my role as a seminary president, uh, meet a lot of pastors from all over the country and... Um, I, I can assure you that um, you did well. So, uh, Kurt, welcome to Mosaic. Welcome to your family. Uh, so it's an honor for me to be here. Unfortunately, that honor includes the book of Job. <laughs> the, the reason I say unfortunately, I was, I, I was talking to my wife when we were driving up here, and, and I, I just was kind of venting about the fact that uh, Job is uh, a very difficult book. You're talking about 42 chapters that is mostly poetry, that uh, Job has uh, just enough ambiguity uh, to be really great art. It, it is spectacular, world-class literature. And, uh, and, and so... That ambiguity lends itself to, to being a great literary masterwork. The problem with ambiguity is that then when you start trying to figure out what does this thing mean, you're constantly confronted with a lot of ambiguity. Um, so what I want to try and do this morning is just give you an overview of what on earth is the book of Job actually about? What is its point? What is it trying to get after? Uh, you know, what is it? And uh, one of the things that really frustrates me as, um, as a scholar is I, I kind of hate doing the, I'm going to get up and I'm going to give a sermon, and you sort of have to take my word for it on a lot of stuff. And uh, so I'm just saying up front that I would prefer, uh, you know, being in a, a, a classroom setting and working over time to really demonstrate that the stuff that I'm talking about I didn't just make up. Uh, but for the sake of time, um, just bear with me because there's a lot that I'm, that I'm, I'm going to say in passing, but understand that 
Um, all of those things are... Um, I've worked on Job for a really long time, okay? So uh, I'm not just breezing... I'm, okay, that's it. That, that's just the nerd caveat that I had to get off my chest. Okay, there it is. So, um, so the book of Job... What we're going to do this week is uh, focus on answering the question, what is the book of Job about, which we can do by just looking at the exchange uh, between Job, what Job has to say, and what God has to say. So this week, I'm going to completely ignore what the friends have to say. For those of you who have never looked at the book of Job, uh, which is completely understandable, Job, uh, and I'll do more of this next week, but Job, it starts with a, a narrative opening, and then it goes into poetry, and it's a lot of poetry, and in the poetry, different people are talking. They give very long-winded, Shakespearean-sounding speeches, uh, and then uh, at the end, the narrator comes back and wraps stuff up, okay? So Job talks. Job has some friends who show up and talk a lot. I'm ignoring the friends today. We'll come back to them next week, all right? But just the gist of the story. Here we go. Um, I don't have a, a, a clock. Usually I can see a clock, and that helps me not get overly long-winded. Uh, so will you do me a favor and, like, I don't know, when I'm... Never mind. I'll just, I'll just try really hard. All right, so Job... Um, <laughs> Uh, usually I remember to check where's, you know, where's the clock, so that, but I forgot. <laughs> so I'm going to read a little bit of Job and how this thing opens up. In the land of Uz, there, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. It's important that you hear that. This isn't like made up. What the book is setting up is that we're going to be dealing with a person who does not deserve to suffer. Uh, uh, he feared God, shunned evil, blameless, upright, that kind of a description you don't get of people in the Bible. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest, that is, wealthiest man among all the people of the East. And the reason that it says from the East is because that's the land of wisdom. So what the story is setting up for you at the very beginning is here's this guy whose name is Job. And Job is wealthy, but he's also uh, blameless and upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. You're being given a picture of a, of a pious, I mean that in a good way, a pious man who, has, uh, who is walking with God, and you're seeing the blessing that has come, presumably as a result of following God. And so right away, the book is triggering an idea that is very prevalent in the book of Proverbs. Have you, where did Bill go? Bill? Where, have you done Proverbs yet? Or that's coming? Okay, so in the Proverbs, you get sort of how God wired the world in general. And one of the ways in which God has wired the world is that if you do good things, good things will result. And if you do really horrible, despicable, stupid things, then bad stuff's going to happen. Right? That makes sense. And what the book of Job is going to do is it's going to interact directly with that idea. But at the beginning, it's setting up the fact that Job is doing good things. He's fearing God, shunning evil, good stuff. And it's showing you he has received good things. 
He's wealthy. He has all, all of these herds and flocks, and that's the ancient Near East version of he has a killer annuity and, you know, all this kind of weird financial stuff, all right? That's what the book is telling you. So, um, and you get some other details, but then if I skip down to Job 1, verse 6, one day the, the angels, what we're going to be taken into this heavenly courtroom scene, all right? And what we're going to see is that one day all of these heavenly throne room, courtroom beings, whatever, whatever they are, they're hanging out. And, and, uh, and so the accuser also comes with them, and the Lord uh, says to the accuser, hey, where you been? And uh, the accuser says, well, you know, roaming around, checking stuff out, roaming from here back and forth, looking around. And so the Lord says to the accuser, hey, have you considered Job? Job's awesome. There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. He, he, he fears uh, me and shuns evil. And so here's the challenge that the accuser issues. Well, does Job fear God for nothing? When you hear fear God, you should think wisdom, by the way. Uh, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he's going to curse you to your face. Here's what's going on. You've got a guy named Job who is blameless and upright, fears God, shuns evil, and he's experienced the blessing as a result. And what happens is you have an accuser who comes along, doesn't accuse Job of anything, accuses God of setting up a bogus system. Basically, it's like the accuser is saying, you're so busy spoiling your kid for his good behavior. Remove that spoiling, and I guarantee you that kid's going to fly the bird at your face. That's the challenge that is issued. And that's the setup of the story. And in one of the most stunningly dramatic moments of showing the character of God, this is what we get. God says, all right, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself don't lay a finger. In other words, God, God says, I'll take that bet. I will bet on a person. And that's a big deal. And, and, and essentially what God is saying is, I believe it is actually possible for a person to follow me regardless of temporal reward. And that's huge. Uh, so uh, Job's life gets messed up. Okay? His kids die and all of his property is, is stolen. He's reduced to nothing in a heartbeat. And uh, in all of that, we, we hear at the end of chapter 1 that Job did not sin by charging God with any sort of wrongdoing. And then uh, you go back up to this uh, heavenly scene in chapter 2, and you get a very similar thing to what you had in chapter 1. You, you, this throne room scene, the accuser shows up, and uh, it, what's really stunning is that God looks at the accuser and says, Hey, Job passed the test. Even though you incited me to destroy him without cause. And that's a really important line because when you try and struggle through the book of Job, if you ever try and read it, you know, good luck because it, it, it's, 
it's, it's thick, right? And, and, and you're trying to slog through the book of Job. And one of the things we're going to see is that Job continually affirms his own righteousness. And that completely rubs us the wrong way. And what we're going to do is we're going to say, well, you know, maybe Job didn't do something wrong that deserved, you know, exactly having his kids killed and all of his property stolen, but he's human. He had to do something wrong. And what's going to happen is this human impulse is going to kick in to somehow say that in the grand cosmic scheme of everything, Job deserved what he got. And that's why it is so important that we have Uh, from the very mouth of God himself saying, I destroyed him without cause. You cannot look at anything in the book of Job and think to yourself, Job deserved what he got. God himself says he didn't deserve it. Okay? That's the setup for the story. And so the drama is around, will Job uh, continue to walk with God in the midst of of basically the reward for walking with God being completely removed. And then uh, the story kind of gets interesting, and I'll, I'll do a little more of an outline next week to sort of help you know, like, if you ever try reading through it, like, okay, now I'm in this section, now I'm in that section, makes it a little easier to read. But what I'll say for now is that when Job starts talking, when, when all of the poetry kicks in in chapter 3, you get a lament from Job where Job basically says, I wish I had never been born, because this sucks. And then uh, Job is going to defend his innocence, and then the friends show up, and we'll talk about the friends next week, but they say a whole bunch of stuff that sounds really good and is dead wrong. Um, and, uh, and Job, throughout the book, Job is wanting God to show up, appear on the stand, and give testimony for why Job has been destroyed, because Job is absolutely convinced he doesn't deserve it. What we know that the characters in the story don't know is that he didn't deserve it. God himself said he didn't deserve it. And, uh, and, and this just sends Job in a tizzy. Uh, for example, let me read just a little bit of one of Job's speeches. This is chapter 9. I'll start in verse 21. Although I am blameless... I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Try that on for your theology. I serve a God who destroys the blameless and the wicked altogether. When a scourge brings sudden death, God mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it's not him, then who is it? Do you hear the way God is, or Job is talking about God? Do you hear this? Like the raw emotion. Job is looking at his own suffering. He is seeing that it is not just, and he's pointing to the divine judge as having forbidden uh, uh, and forsaken justice. And he wants God to show up and give an account for how it is that Job could be uh, so righteous, so good at following the Lord, and yet have a life that is so utterly destroyed. And so he's blaming God of perverting justice. And what we know that Job doesn't know is that God perverted justice. 
It's, it's right there in the beginning of the book. So as the story goes on, uh, Job, like I said, is continually trying to get God to show up to give an account for how he can be so utterly destroyed. And the friends are saying a bunch of stuff that we'll look at next week. But eventually God shows up. And I, and I want to look at some of the stuff where God actually shows up. Um, so let's, let's read a little bit of, uh, I'm going to read a little bit to you of Job chapter 38. This is where God finally shows up. And remember that Job wants God to show up and explain why it is he's suffering unjustly. Okay, so here's God's response to unjust suffering. Check it out. Then the Lord spoke to Job, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plan with words without knowledge? Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you, and you will answer me. So here we go. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? I mean, surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind its doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set door, its doors and bars in place, and when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. How about this one? Job, have you ever journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? I mean, come on, Job, tell me. You obviously know What's going on? <laughs> this goes on and on and on. And the question is, how on earth is any of this a response to Job's suffering and to the injustice that Job feels about the suffering? You see, Job wants to take God to court, and Job wants God to answer him within the domain of justice. And what God does is look at Job and say, you're asking me to answer about this one little sliver of your life. Could you kindly tell me about the administration of the universe? Because until you know how to bring rain upon the land, what business do you have asking about how I administrate the universe. That's God's response. It's chilling, and I wouldn't exactly call it fun. Let me go on and, and go towards the end of what God has to say to Job. Uh, he's going to talk about the Leviathan. 
And just FYI, there's a lot of really weird Christian literature out there about the Leviathan. So uh, just don't go there. It's just, you're just, it, it's just a lot of weird stuff. The Leviathan uh, is, is a Hebrew word uh, that, that has several different meanings, but at its core, it's the giant animal that you can't control. All right? So at the beginning of this chapter, some people will uh, call this uh, a reference to the crocodile, which will make sense. You'll hear that. Uh, but it, like in Genesis uh, 1 in creation, God makes the Leviathan, and, and there you're talking about the ginormous uh, creatures of the sea, right? So giant whales or big sharks. The idea is animals that are so big that they're scary and totally out of your control. All right? That, that's, that's the gist. So... Uh, This is Job 41. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Okay? So, again, think in terms of a crocodile or a giant whale. Can you pull pull that in with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Uh, A cord through the nose, by the way, is how they transported slaves in the ancient world. Okay, so it's a reference to can you you just arbitrarily make the Leviathan your slave? Uh, Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird? Or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing, its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And there God is answering Job's accusation that God stole from him. So we're going to go on with Leviathan and listen to the turn that this takes. This is chapter 41, verse 12. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between them. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. And this goes on and on and on. Do you see how at the beginning of the Leviathan speech, you can sort of be like, oh, I think he's talking about maybe a a crocodile or a whale this, this giant animal. And then as, the, as it goes on, all of a sudden, you're like, that sounds like a dragon. <laughs> right? Apparently, apparently, these people believed in dragons. Okay? Uh, by the way, 
I have no idea what that means when it says, hey, it's 10.50. Is that like a shut up sign or is that just a, uh, a general, the time? Oh, by the way, it's 11 o'clock now. I also don't know what that means. When do I quit? Oh, you're like, whatever. Um, all right. So, so here, here's what I want you to see, right? The, 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 our tendency when we read something like this is... is all through these speeches of God, we can track with what he's referring to. He talks about the storms. He talks about the weather. He talks about different animals that we know of, you know, like mountain goats and uh, uh, horses, you know, mighty war horses. You read all of this, and you're like, okay, I know about that creature. And then you get to the Leviathan, and you're like, okay, I know what a giant blue whale is, or I know, I know what a crocodile is. And, and you can track with it, and you're getting the fact that what God is saying is, I am in control of a whole lot of stuff that you can't even begin to fathom. And you can track with the fact that God is saying, why are you griping about what's going on in your own little life when you don't even know how to bring rain upon the land? Like, what? where are you getting off, you know? And you can track the fact that that's essentially what God is saying. But then you get to this Leviathan thing, and all of a sudden it sounds like dragons, and you're like, what on earth is going on? What is he talking about? What's super interesting is that in the ancient world, uh, in cultures uh, that are uh, similar in time and place to when this would be written, there is this thing called Leviathan. It appears in Ugaritic literature, for those of you who wanted the nerd moment. It's Ugaritic literature. And it's essentially that untamable monster in life. What's going on in Job here when it starts sounding like it's talking about dragons? It's not inviting you to try and figure out what, what animal is he referring to. What it's doing is it's pulling you off of this, I can identify the animal, and getting you into a poetic description of the chaos that hits our lives. It's kind of like how we talk about the storms of life. We use that as a metaphor, right, for the, for the crap that hits our lives. But we can talk about a storm as a real thing. And that's essentially what chapter 41 does. It starts by talking about the storm, and you're like, yeah, I can identify that. He's talking about the lightning in the sky and the hailstones, and like he's actually talking about a real storm. I can picture that. And then all of a sudden it starts talking about the storms of our life using all sorts of metaphors about the chaos and the crazy that hits us. That's what he's doing with Leviathan. He's starting with this giant animal that you can't control. Let's talk about all of the wickedness and the evil and the tragedy and the nonsense in the storms and chaos of your life. That thing, that chaos that rages against a good life. We'll call that Leviathan. And can you tame Leviathan? And the obvious answer is, nope, not at all. And what God declares is that even the chaos monster, even the storms of life, are but a plaything to him. That's God's response to Job's suffering. You see, what God does 
is he invites Job to get out of this idea of do good and get good, this justice idea of how the world should work, this very mechanistic view that we all want, right? We all want to know what are the buttons I can push that will guarantee I'm going to have a good life and tragedy will never strike. And what God does is pull Job out of that thinking and says, I am administering a universe and a cosmos that is so complicated that you can't even begin to fathom anything I'm doing. And that's God's response to Job's suffering. And so in chapter 42, Job responds, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me in my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I reject my case, is what it's getting at, and uh, I withdraw. I just have to digress for just a second. A lot of the English translations of Job 42 verse 6 will say something like, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's really misleading, because what it's telling you is that Job withdraws his case. What Job is saying is, I reject this this argument, this legal argument that I've had against you, and and I withdraw. That's the thing getting translated repent. It's not like, oh, woe is me, I sinned, I repent in dust and ashes, I hate myself. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I reject this case I've had against you, and I withdraw from my wallowing, my dust and ashes, my feeling bad for myself. That's what he's doing. He's withdrawing his case against God because he's been given a window into the complexity of the universe that God administrates, and he's realized that his own problem, he he doesn't have the wisdom to understand what is going on. So he trusts God. And then uh, the story, then the the narrator comes back in, and this is the part of the story that a lot of people hate. the narrator comes back in and describes how Job's fortunes are eventually restored. And uh, a lot of people kind of hate that ending because it's like, wait, I've had this whole book telling me that, what, that reality is more complex than do good, get good. But then at the end, he gets his good back. So what the heck? And uh, what the book is inviting you to see is that God delights in rewarding good with good. God delights in blessing those who chase hard after him. But we cannot view God as a machine that if I put the right inputs, I'm going to guarantee the right output. You cannot walk around wondering, how do I pray this prayer just right so that God will answer it? All you can do is fall upon the goodness of God and ask him. And that's a really, really tough lesson to learn. And I have to be honest, uh, I was telling Becky this on the way up here, sometimes I really hate talking about the, the book of Job to, to a crowd like this because I know that some of you are in the middle of extreme suffering. 
And the message of your view is too limited for you to make any sense of your extreme suffering is maybe not the most comforting message you've ever heard in the midst of suffering. Uh, but that's what was going on with Job. And, and I have to say that uh, for the crap storms of my own life, uh, over time I have learned how to take comfort in the fact that I don't know what God is doing, but I can know that he's doing something. And I think that it all comes down to do we believe that God is good? Because if, if in the core of my being, I believe that God is good, then I can look at all, of all, all the stuff that's going on in my life, and even though I can't make sense of it, even though I hate it, even though I'm suffering, I can at least say I believe in a good God who is administering a complex universe, and I believe with everything in me, I choose to believe with everything in me that he is up to something out of his goodness that in the end is going to result in the fulfillment of his plans for his people and his world. And honestly, sometimes that's a very, very difficult place to be, especially when you find yourself wondering, is God any good or not? Because if God's not good, then his sovereign control of the universe is terrifying. That's the book of Job. That's the main idea, okay? The main idea. Whatever is going on in your life, God is administering a severely complex universe. And even if you don't know what's going on, you can at least trust in a good God who has a plan. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I ask, uh, ask that you would speak to us uh, through the message of Job. I know that sometimes it's a difficult one to swallow, and Lord, above all else, I ask that... Um, that my words and the words of the book of Job would not be used to bludgeon one another or to further discourage in the midst of suffering, but that perhaps, Lord, you could show us just enough, Lord, of your goodness and your grace and your mercy that will somehow enable us to keep moving forward and to keep striving towards you and to keep loving you and to keep our faith in you through the midst of the Leviathans of our lives. Amen. Thanks, Eric. And uh, perhaps Mosaic... um like me, sometimes you just have to appreciate being pulled into an ancient story, uh, and it just causes you to stop and uh, maybe come to a new place of awe. So, Eric, thanks for thanks for bringing us into an ancient story and bringing us to a place of awe.
I'm a word person, um, so sometimes the words in my head and the words out of my mouth just needs to stop. And uh, maybe that's where you're at right now, and maybe you're going through uh, a chaotic storm in some way right now, or you sense that one may be coming, or maybe you're still trying to heal from one that has been with you uh, in a recent time. What is God doing in the midst of that? Uh, I don't know. We don't know. You don't know. But we can trust that God is doing something good. Um, In Mosaic, I I think with a certain level of certainty, I can say this. God is not asking you to conjure up more faith in the midst of that chaotic storm. That's just unnecessary work. Because Jesus has exercised all of the faith that you and I need. And so this isn't about conjuring up more faith to make it through a storm or to heal from a storm. Uh, This is about receiving the faith of Jesus and allowing his faithfulness to live through us. that's, That's a life right there. Learning to just be a recipient. Jesus, your faith is all that I need. And so I'm just going to trust and I'm going I'm to take refuge in you, Jesus, and I'm going to let your faith live through me because then I'll know how to respond to God, maybe what you're doing. So when we gather as a church, we gather and we gather with these simple elements uh, of the bread and the cup and we invite you to come forward at this time uh, during this last song and dip the bread into the cup. Hear the invitation of Jesus. Um, to stop trying to conjure up your own faith, stop trying to conjure up your own survival plan, and take refuge in him and allow his faithfulness to be lived through you. Uh, And all you do is simply receive his faithfulness. So let's, let's be recipients in this moment, Mosaic. Let's be recipients of the faithfulness of Jesus. It's a gift. It's a gift given to us, and we receive it. And then, man, we get to go and share that gift with the world all around us being battered by chaotic storms. So when you're ready during this last song, come. Come and allow this to be a a moment uh, to receive. When you're ready, come. Well, hey, I know today can feel heavy. Right? This series, it's wisdom through the, the ups of life, but also the downs of life. How do, we, how do we maintain wisdom when we're up and when we're down? And I, I feel like I've interacted with so many people in the church who, when things don't go the way that they thought, they say, F you, God. So many times. I know I've had that posture in my own life as well. And I love the fact that in the book of Job, like Eric said, at the very end, Job's section is so short, he's like, I take it back. When presented with the magnitude of the universe and God's control of the magnitude of the universe, his response is, you're right. There's so much more going on here. And so even though maybe today feels heavy, I say we walk out with our head lifted high because no matter what our circumstances, God is in control. God has the plan and God is good. And we hold on to that and we know that. But if you are going through something really heavy, that is what the church is for. That you don't have to go through life alone. You go through it in community with people. And so if you need someone to talk to, I would love to talk with you. 
if that's a little bit too intense for you, you can send us an email, info at mosaiclincoln.com, and we would love to connect to you uh, because you don't have to go through those downs all by yourself or all alone. You have people that are willing to surround you. Mosaic, I love you guys. As we go, let's look to find the wisdom of Job. And can we be people that presented with bad circumstances, but we choose to continue to live a life of worship and trust in God. So let's do that as we walk out here this week. Love you, Mosaic. We'll see you next week.